Hello. Um, so yeah, as Alexander said, today we're continuing our kind of whistle-stop tour through the book of Exodus. And the story so far has kind of revolved around the problem of the Israelite slavery in Egypt and God's response to that, his rescue plan, and particularly how it's carried out through Moses. And last week, Jesse took us through all but one of the plagues, and we saw Pharaoh repeatedly refuse to let the Israelites go until finally, at the end of chapter 10, he basically says to Moses, if you come and see me again, you'll die. So where does that leave us and the Israelites now? Well, spoiler alert, today we see them actually leave Egypt. Um, yeah, we got there. Um, and there's, just, there's so much in today's passage. There's a lot of um, potentially tricky and confusing little bits. And there's a lot of imagery and symbolism and a lot that echoes through the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament because it's a massively important story for the Jewish people and for us as Christians as well. And a whole lot of that is about remembering and actually living that story for ourselves. If you remember back to when Toby introduced this series, he talked about the Exodus mindset, which assumes that our lives are to be experienced as the story of a whole people group. So we're going to start with that. We're going to get into the story. And as we read... Um, I'd like to do two things. First of all, try and let yourself really get into the story. Like close your eyes, whatever helps, but experience it as if you were living it. And second, be listening for the two big themes that we'll be focusing on today, deliverance and remembrance. It's quite a long passage, but I think it's important that we read it all. So here we go. should be on the screen as well, starting at Exodus 11. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who's at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people with you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. 
Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all in these days, except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses, and anyone, whether foreign or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe, and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country. Otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. So we made it. They're out of Egypt. And as we read through, um, you probably noticed that there's two separate but kind of connected things going on here. So there's the actual escape from Egypt with that last plague and the first Passover and Pharaoh driving the people out. But there's also instructions for the commemoration of that. 
in the Passover festival. As verse 14 says in chapter 12, this is a day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. And these two parts are where the two big ideas that we're considering today come from. Deliverance in the actual escape from Egypt and remembrance in the Passover festival. So let's start with the escape. Deliverance. One of my professors says every week in class, good exegesis begins with description. So basically, when we're trying to understand and interpret passages of the Bible, a good place to start is just by describing what we see. And I find that it helps if I ask myself questions. So my two questions here are, how does deliverance come about? And what does deliverance mean? What does it look like? First, how does it come about? The big answer, of course, is God and the final plague. In verse 1, God says to Moses, I will bring one more plague on, Egypt, on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And we've thought quite a bit in this series about the way that God chooses unlikely people and shapes them and works through them to fulfill his plans and purposes. And that is true. And it's great. But I think the danger for some of us, especially for me, is that we make it too much about ourselves and whether that's because we feel inadequate and unqualified, like Moses did at the burning bush, or because we fancy ourselves some kind of hero, like Moses did when he killed the Egyptian in chapter 2. We saw at the burning bush that God's answer to Moses' feelings of inadequacy wasn't, you can do it, have confidence in yourself. It was, I will be with you. And as Toby said then, the question is not who we are, but who has sent us. It's about God, not us. And this final plague is different from all the ones that we looked at last week because God chooses not to work through Moses this time. He lets Moses know what will happen and Moses is still the messenger to Pharaoh. But this time God says, I will go throughout Egypt. He acts for himself as he is perfectly capable of doing. It's not about us. And it's humbling but also incredibly freeing to be reminded of this. And I think that Oswald Chambers puts it very well. He says, we have to get rid of this notion, am I of any use? And make up our minds that we're not. And we may be near the truth. It is never a question of being of use, but of being of value to God himself. When we're abandoned to God, he works through us all the time. So let's not kid ourselves that we're God, or even that he needs us. He chooses to work through us because we're of value to him. But let's not take that heavy burden of self-importance and ultimate responsibility because he doesn't want us to have it. He's in charge and perfectly capable of acting with or without us. As Jesse said last week, the plagues are the answer to Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him and let the people go? And this time, God leaves Pharaoh in no doubt of his absolute power and the fact that he is the one in charge. He is Lord over all the Egyptians as well as over the Israelites. And this time when God acts to deliver Israel, he does so through death. God takes life to redeem life. Back in chapter 4, we saw that Israel is God's firstborn son. And because Pharaoh has mistreated them and refused to let them go, Pharaoh's firstborn, Egypt's firstborn, will die. And here God makes good on that promise. But he provides a way for the Israelites to be spared from death. The blood of the Passover lamb. And there are all kinds of New Testament echoes here. Because the lamb has to be without blemish. It has to be perfect. It's killed at twilight 
which uh, in later Jewish writing is understood to be the time between about 3 p.m. and sunset. And the blood is dabbed on the doorposts across the top, down the sides. And this blood is a sign of protection for the Israelites, of the distinction between them and the Egyptians. Not even a dog's bark will disturb any of them. Perfect lambs, killed at 3 p.m., their blood a sign of protection. Sounds a lot like Jesus' death to me. As has been said several times this series already, this could be a sermon in itself. But we've just got time to point it out from the window as the Exodus Express goes on. So deliverance comes from God. (laughs) Deliverance comes from God and through death. Second question, what does deliverance mean? What does it look like? First of all, it's the start of a whole new life. And that's symbolized by the fact that at the start of chapter 12, this month is made the first month. What happens at Passover is so important for the Israelite community that it marks the start of a new year. And next, it means freedom from slavery. That's what the people have been crying out for the whole time. But notice when Pharaoh drives them out in chapter 12, this is verses 31 and 32, he tells them to go and worship God. And that, of course, has been the reason all along. God says to Pharaoh again and again, let my people go so that they may worship me. They're set free for a purpose. And here I think it's interesting that the Hebrew word for worship also means serve, as in serving a master. When Pharaoh tells the Israelites to go and worship God, he's effectively acknowledging that they're no longer in his service, but in God's. They have a new master. So their freedom, in some way, is really just a change of ownership. But again, isn't that exactly what we see in the New Testament? We're slaves to God and to righteousness instead of slaves to sin. Read Romans 6. I think sometimes we can get our ideas of freedom and what it means mixed up. And Tim Keller defines it quite helpfully. Freedom, then, is not the absence of limitations and constraints, but it is finding the right ones, those that fit our nature and liberate us. The problem for the Israelites in Egypt was that they were enslaved to the wrong master. They needed to be brought out and rescued so that they could serve and worship God instead. God is not just liberating slaves, but reclaiming worshippers for himself. So deliverance means a new life, a new master, which is real freedom. And it also means a new identity as a united people. Before this, the Israelites didn't have any formal festivals. They didn't have any um, prescribed ways to worship. They had circumcision to identify them and probably some kind of vague sense of their ancestors and their history and the way they ended up in Egypt. But it's this experience which really starts to define them as a nation and as God's people. Passover has this aim of unifying the people from the disruption and the chaos that characterized their slavery. And even in the Passover preparations, we see this, because the entire community of Israel has to eat it. And they eat in their families. There's no solitary meals They all eat the same thing at the same time in the same place. And even the lamb's not cut up but roasted whole. It's all about wholeness, unity, relationship with one another and with God. That's what deliverance is about. And I think it's important as well, especially when we're thinking about the New Testament echoes and implications, that their deliverance involves the whole of life. It rescues them from an oppression that is political, it's economic, social and spiritual and often we can just spiritualize this and say so in the exodus god delivered the israelites from slavery to egypt and when we map that onto the new testament the meaning of that for us today is that through the cross god delivered us from slavery to sin 
And I'm not saying that's not true. He did do that. But there is more to it. Especially because the Passover is not actually about delivering the Israelites from their own sin, but from the sins, the mistreatment, and the abuse of the Egyptians. And Chris Wright has a really helpful chapter on this in his book, The Mission of God, and he puts it like this. This is not for a moment to imply that the Israelites were not themselves sinners, as much in need of God's mercy and grace as the rest of the human race. The subsequent story of their behavior in the wilderness proved that beyond a doubt. The point here is that atonement and forgiveness for one's own sin is not what the Exodus redemption was about. It was rather a deliverance from an external evil and the suffering and injustice it caused by means of a shattering defeat of the evil power and an irrevocable breaking of its hold over Israel in all the dimensions, political, economic, social, and spiritual. This is a release from slavery to all that oppresses human life and well-being and opposes God. It's God, through his great power, releasing us from slavery to his enemies and setting us free to serve and worship him. And it encompasses all of life. It's God's total response to Israel's and our total need. And it affects the physical aspects, the social aspects, and the spiritual. We can't separate them. That means that this deliverance has implications for every part of life. Politics, prayer, money, relationships, church, work, even food. So let's talk about food for a bit. Anyone who knows me probably knows that food's one of the things that I get most excited about. And so I love the fact that this release from slavery, this story that defines so much of the identity of God's people and how they understand and relate to him, centers around and then is celebrated in a meal. There's something so significant about food and meals. At this first Passover, the Israelites kill their lambs. They put the blood on the door frames, and then they eat the roasted meat with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. As Yahweh is passing through Egypt and striking down the Egyptian firstborn, the Israelites are in their houses eating a meal. And then every year after that, they're to celebrate the way he spared them from death and set them free from slavery with another meal and a week-long festival. Which brings us to the second big idea, remembrance. Part of, this reason, part of the reason this passage can be a little bit difficult to follow is because the story of their escape and the institution of the Passover festival are kind of interwoven. They have to go together. It's so important that the Israelites continue to remember and commemorate this. But why? Well, partly because it defines their relationship with God. So often throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God says of himself, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's how he identifies himself to the people. But it's also important because remembering God's faithfulness and redemption in the past fills us with trust and excitement and hope for the future. We're so apt to forget God's goodness and faithfulness and just focus on the difficulties in front of us. But he knows. He knows that tendency in us. And he knows that it's good for, remem- good for us to remember who he is and what he's done. So how are they to remember? By celebrating with a meal that's full of symbolism. And we don't see all the instructions laid out here. There's other passages that give instructions for the Passover as well. But one of the commentaries describes it like this. The Passover meal was a symbolic reenactment rendered in food of the miraculous deliverance of the Jews from bondage in Egypt. Each kind of food that was eaten stood for some aspect of the way in which God had saved his chosen people before and would save them again in the future. 
often the things that the Bible speaks of and the things that God is doing are kind of difficult for us to properly wrap our heads around. So he provides ways for us to remember and celebrate with things that enact those kind of abstract truths of our faith in ways that we can understand. And that's why food is so important. The Passover meal means that that experience of freedom isn't just a historical memory. It's a, li- it's a living reality as they reenact it in the food. The word used in verse 24 when they're being given instructions about this, the one that's translated ceremony or observance, it means a kind of labor. It means acting it out. So it's not just mental remembering. There's participation as well. It, it is a reenactment. And they remember not just the freedom and the redemption and the good things, but what they're freed from. There's the bitter herbs symbolize the bitterness of slavery. And later on, um, it's explained that the bread is the bread of affliction. So as they celebrate each year, and as Jews continue to celebrate each year, they're experiencing again that pain of slavery and then the joy of freedom. They're joining the past experience of their ancestors with their present and living the story. But it's not just their story, it's our story as well. We couldn't really talk about Passover as Christians without connecting it with the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal, as Alexander was saying earlier. That's the reason all the Jews were there in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, to celebrate the Passover. And again, there's so much that could be said here that we don't have time for. But I just wanted to draw the connection between the two meals. Both of them are about remembering the way that God redeems his people and sets them free. And that's what we'll be doing tonight. We'll be having a Passover meal, taking communion together, and then moving into worship as we celebrate our freedom and worship the one who sets us free. And just one last thing before I finish. I want to point out that both these meals, the Passover and the Last Supper, take place on the night before redemption actually happens. There is still a sense of waiting of a future hope that's still to come. And as we continue to remember, as we put ourselves into this story, it's the same for us. We've seen and experienced the redemption that they were waiting for in Jesus. But there is still a sense of waiting, of more that's still to come, the now and the not yet. Jews finish the Passover meal by proclaiming together next year in Jerusalem, expressing their hope of a full restoration. And when we take communion... As well as celebrating the way God has set us free from slavery so that we can serve and worship him, we also look forward to the full coming of God's kingdom. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what do we learn from Passover? Well, God is sovereign. He delivers his people from slavery to the wrong masters, and he brings them into the freedom of worshiping and serving him. And he instructs them to remember and celebrate that to reenact the story in a meal, to make it their own story, and to look forward to the future hope they have, the hope of the full coming of his reign, his kingdom. And we're God's people. So that's for us just as much as it was for the Israelites in Egypt. And this isn't just a a once-a-year thing. It's an everyday, every-hour thing. We have this freedom now, this liberation from slavery, and the future hope of when the not-yet-becomes-now. So let's remember that and live accordingly and worship our creator who sets us free. Why don't you stand and I'll pray.
Yahweh, Lord God, Father, thank you that you are sovereign and that nothing and no one is more powerful than you. Thank you that you bring freedom and deliverance from slavery. As we come before you now, would you come by your Holy Spirit? Would you continue to set us free, continue to liberate us to be worshippers, continue to bring your kingdom in this place? We remember your faithfulness to us in the past, and we want to trust you with the future. This time is yours.